Walking away from Arcadia. We are here with another one of our book reviews. This one might end up being a little more than just a book review because it is on The Enchanted. And we haven't really just had an episode just on The Canane and The Enchanted. We've certainly gotten into it a bit here and there. As you will discover as we go through this review, though, The Enchanted isn't exactly what it sounds like. This is a first edition book. When you look at the cover, it's Year of the Ally, and all the other Year of the Ally books were like ghouls or kinfolk, etc. And that was like the whole focus was on the allies of whatever the main supernatural was. This book is a little bit different. Simon, how is this book broken down, and how did you feel about it? This book is broken up into... Like, three basic sections. There's one on the Canaan, there's one on the Enchanted, and then it goes into full-on... Now we're going to talk about the Changelings again for the last third. I don't know, I found that very odd. It almost felt like after they finished writing this, they should have gone back to the table and been like, okay, so this is what we actually wrote. Let's just retitle this book to have something to do with mortality, because it's only kind of about the Enchanted. This book treats Kinane differently than C20 ends up treating Kinane. In C20, the Kinane are endless, albeit slow, fonts of glamour, and they're basically perma-enchanted, and we get rid of all of the inconveniences for actually involving them in your stories. In this book, the Canaan, the Fae-blooded, the not-fully-changeling relatives of the Fae, are closer to the Dreaming. They have the ability to learn arts, but they have zero intrinsic glamour. They do not have the one glamour a week or month or whatever thing that happens in C20. And in order to see chimerical reality, they have to be enchanted. Now, enchanting them is much easier if you're good at calculus. Man, like, they did not make getting to that difficulty simple, but it is much easier than enchanting a normal mortal or even a dreamer, and it lasts longer, but you still have to do it. You have to invest glamour in keeping them juiced or keep them in a freehold. In that respect, like, the first two sections at least sort of are still all talking about gradients of the enchanted. But I kind of came away from the Kinain section feeling a little bit confused about what the Kinain represented in the overall world. Like the book opens and they give you a couple examples of like classic Kinain characters. Kukulain, or, you know, other people in that mold. And then at the end, where you have the NPCs, there are a couple, like, classic great human heroes that are wrapped up in the work of fairies or gods, etc. But the actual section on the Kinane was very 
well, I have a weird family member. And sometimes I don't quite remember what I did with them. And it was a little bit jarring for me. Did you have that same experience? Yeah, I had that experience with the part where they start talking about like what happens when enchantment wears off and they talk about how, you know, it goes as normal for them because they are human and so they fall into the mists and they forget. And there's like this whole, I don't know, page or two of the book dedicated to talking about that. And they never reference the mists chart and they just talk about it like it's all storyteller fiat, which that's a way to do it. But I mean, put some guardrails on that. Like, let's at least shoehorn this into the rest of the game. <laughs> On the one hand, this book is very good at sort of creating an alternate universe where humans matter to changelings. And on the other hand, because it's kind of an alternate universe, there are really jagged edges where the two kind of collide and don't get along. Yeah, I remember at least one place where they do mention the Miss chart, but I only remember it once. And there are at least four or five places where they talk about the coming out of the mists and the memory issues. And I agree, it would be better if there was, I wouldn't even say a sense of consistency, but it would be better if they had either gone a systems route and said, there's this chart in the core book, use it. Or if they have said, this is really an NPC book. So... Do what you yeah. need to. Because it kind of reads like an NPC book, which is not a critique, actually. Like, Enchanted and Canane are important NPCs to, like, grease the wheels of interacting with humanity. But the book doesn't make that claim. And I feel like it should have. Yeah, I feel like most of this book was written by somebody who was expecting the Enchanted and the Canane to be dependent NPCs. Or like, you know, retainers or dreamers or whatever for PC characters. And then like, a tiny bit of it was written by somebody who was really into the idea of them being standalone PC characters. I know which one of those I would have preferred, but it's not the one we got. And at the end of the day, when they finished writing this book, somebody should have sat down and been like, okay, this was the mission statement, but this is what we wrote. Let's just revise the intro and some of the ad copy a little bit so that we reflect what we actually wrote, because it's not bad. It's just not what they said they were going to write. I will say about that kind of tension I felt between the Kanane as mortal hero swept up in the supernatural and the more mundane take on the Kanane, which is, I would say, what most of the book covered. I think there's an important place for both of those things and there was this metaphor they kept dancing around in the book that they never quite committed to i feel like and it's the metaphor that runs through all of changeling about the balancing act between glamour and banality and they have like a bedlam-like concept in the book for canane and enchanted called dreamstruck it shows up throughout the whole book and they don't really explain it and they don't really explain it and I finally just went, I can't do this anymore, and I skipped ahead to the write-up on it, because none of the text before that write-up totally makes sense if you haven't read it. And it's not exactly Bedlam, 
It's not exactly even second edition or first edition Bedlam. It's more that just like being completely lost, glossy thing that happens with mortals that just like can interact with their day-to-day life anymore. And it getting so bad that even changelings can't interact with them. And okay, I, I dig that. And so you have that on kind of the over-invested in glamour side. And then on the banality side, it's just like, well, I guess you aren't enchanted anymore. There could have been a really interesting thing where they go kind of the puck from Gargoyles route. They like mention at the beginning of the book, Kinane Dantain in a paragraph. And then they never do anything with that. And I was like, well, that's never been written up. I don't have rules for that. I don't even have like a three paragraph description of what that looks like, but it's kind of a cool idea. How are they different from Autumn People and how are they different from Changeling Dante? Shrug. So you have this completely undeveloped thought on one side and you have this not really narratively interesting thought on the other side with being dreamstruck and just being like glassy-eyed and lost. And just a little bit of tweaking of that. Just like finish that Dante Canaan thought, whatever that needs to be. And have that be a response to trauma. Actually do something with all the like weird Kinane as slave references. And write up some repercussions for that that are usable on the banality side. And then make the dream struck like a full dysfunctional, I can't go back to the real world. And when the miss part, I become like a horrible addict and claw my way back into your freehold. And I can't function anymore because I have to be a fucking hero. And, like, finish that thought, and then you would have, like, a whole dynamic thing that you have to struggle with and engage with. And as much as, like, I was telling Simon before we started recording, this is probably my favorite first edition book. I know it probably doesn't seem like that at this moment in time, but that, that like, first edition thing is a pretty big asterisk. This is a more complete write-up of the Canaan and the Enchanted that I've ever seen, it comes with downsides, unlike the C20 write-up, which is a little too super-powered rosy for me. But it still just feels like a thought that they never finished writing. The first time I read this, I was deep in my Charles DeLint phase, and this book just, like, blends into that kind of writing really easily. The thing I realized reading it now is that it's just a series of incomplete thoughts. The Kinane, they have, you know, all those references to mortal-ish heroes like Kukulain, like Merlin, like True Thomas, and they never really get around to being like, this is how you do that. And then you get to the character creation chapter, and they have special Kinane-only merits that they call fairy gifts. And you read those, and you're like, oh, this is how they do that, because they are very specific, very Kinane-only things, like you can consciously manipulate the mists, which is not a thing changelings do, and it's not a thing humans do, and it's kind of cool. And there's just a bunch of those. And some of them aren't super well-constructed, but that's where the, like, you know, heroes are a terrible thing to be around because they're more powerful than you thing comes in but 
it's missing a ton of connective tissue, <laughs> you know? Because, like, you can't use these things if you're not enchanted, and how do you get enchanted? I don't know. The other thing that really stood out to me when looking at how do you tap that hero model, how do you use, you know, these various pieces of system they put in this book is in addition to the fairy gifts, they have basically fairy marks. You are considered to be a canane of a particular kith. You're a knocker canane or you're a she canane and you pick up a little bit of that ambiance. And then they do this really weird thing where they talk about what happens when a canane is born of two changelings of different kiths. And it's kind of like reading a Metis write-up. Like, there are some intrinsic flaws to how dare you not be of pure blood. And I was just like, really? We're gonna, we're gonna do this in Changeling? Because I've never anywhere read a taboo about the kiths, like, fraternizing. In fact, it's kind of all over Changeling. The Fiona and the Satyrs are a whole thing. It's why they contracted the same artist to do that chapter and that kith book. So, like, I got to that and I was very confused because, at least for me, going across kith identity, like, the Kanane get to be outside of that. They get to have a little bit of that human anthropic spark. And I could see some of their blood, you know, shining through, but I could also see their own creativity transforming that because they get to dream and create wonder. And instead, we got this weird, punitive, not quite medicine thing and it left me very confused and on the same vein there's the discussion about the place of the the canaan and the enchanted in concordian society versus the place of the canaan and the enchanted in pre-concordian society somewhere in there there was like a census which is never a good idea in a world of darkness book but there's a census in there where they talk about the heritability of being a changeling and it's like if both parents are changelings, there's a 50% chance their children are also changelings. And then, like, it goes on into weird, like, Punnett Square de degradations of that. Why are we doing this? And then it goes into the place of the Canaan and the Enchanted in Concordian society. They tiptoe up to it's bad, generally. Like, there might be a freehold here or there that, like, actually likes having they're dreamers or humans or whatever around, but there's no legal standing for them in Concordia generally. And I think I saw a mention that like the commoners take issue with David not granting their family's protection because one of the things this book does is it makes a delineation between the way the commoners think of their humans and the way the she think of their humans. And after, you know, 10 generations of basically being humans, the commoners are like, yeah, no, you don't fuck with family. And the she are like, eh, eh, we stole this. We don't really care. Like, they never finished that thought either, where, like, they go into, David's generally a good guy, but, like, look at this thing he did. Doesn't that make you think? As much as I like the tone of this book generally... It never fully commits to it being, like, part of the World of Darkness horror thing, even though, like, it gives you all the, like, lead-up to where the horror should be in this book. I especially felt that way about the slavery theme, because 
the fact that changelings take Kinane as slaves is regularly mentioned. And then I finally got to a section where it was a heading and they, you know, just talk about it directly for a couple paragraphs. And the write-up is really weird because there's what Simon just said about the commoners being like, don't fuck with family. And the she being like, I stole this. I don't care about these people. I don't know them from Adam. And they're sons of Adam anyway. And I never met that guy. Like, they don't care. But then the whole section on slavery is like, oh, well, the she courts don't don't approve of slavery, especially the Sealy ones. And it was, I just, I looked at the way that was worded, and it's worded basically exactly that way, and I'm like, wait a second. So, like, we're going to say the she generally don't do the slavery thing. There's, like, this weird, especially the Sealy, so, like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, but still we're saying none of the she, but wink, wink, nudge, nudge. But that only actually leaves the implication that most of the changelings doing the slavery of the commoners. Except anyone who has ever read a metric changeling knows that that doesn't make any sense. The she are the dream of power and noblement and entitlement. They're the ones who would take slaves. They're the ones who have sovereign. They're the ones who have naming at this, like, or are going to get naming at this point, because, again, late first edition book. And it was just so weird they never just deal with the slavery and the repercussions of it and then the one place that they like pretend like they're going to they frame it in a way that's thematically the opposite of the rest of this book and even more so the rest of the line i don't really know exactly what they were doing there yeah it's really easy for me to read that as uh, the author is being uncomfortable with the subject matter, and I can totally like sympathize with that. But at the same time, they really needed to like just dive into the sewer on that one and like I don't know, bring in a vampire writer because they got so close to writing ghouls so many times, and then they just kept backing away from it. Very, very legitimately, and this is maybe a more contemporary take on the she again first edition book i had to remind myself that i was reading a first edition book repeatedly as i went through this thing because it is not the take on the sealy or the unsealy that i have become accustomed to but like even early views on the sealy just like that hardline nobility order structure tyranny was always kind of there even in the earlier stuff I know this is still before even like the first Houses book, but look at Gwydion. Gwydion were written as tyrants. They were not written as good guy Seely. And so, yeah, I just felt like that was an area where there was a little bit of a miss. I would have liked much more to have seen, you know, maybe you don't go with the slavery language because the glamour bound thing... Yes, it's slavery, but if you're uncomfortable with that language and everything that that brings to the table, there is a way to talk about it more completely without specifically invoking that. You can go for, you know, the surf dynamic. You can go with the tyranny of being honor bound. You can go with addiction. I would have loved more than like five words on the addictive nature of enchantment. It gets acknowledged once or twice in like a sentence, and that's it. 
there are so many models that could have made this more World of Darkness book that would have let them bypass the problem of navigating the word slavery, but they chose the word slavery instead of all of those things, and then didn't follow through. Yeah, and like, there's this weird section towards the end of the book in the storyteller section where they briefly touch on the power of Goss and, you know, what happens when you lay a Goss on humans and Kinane and prodigals and they have very specific, like, things that happen for each of those groups. And what happens to Kinane and Enchanted is, well, we prefer not to do that. And it's like, you have a you, you have a you have a suction header about slavery. This is how you do magical slavery in dreaming. What? Like, why would you not do that? And like, it could be super interesting. What happens to an enchanted who falls out of their enchantment with a goss on them? Like, does the goss suspend? Do they get to act normally again, or is it still there, warping their actions, and they don't know why? Like, either one of those is really interesting, and they just didn't. And I mean, this is a core power for the she. Like, why? Why did you skip this? So, we've done a lot of ragging. Maybe it wouldn't be a terrible idea for us to circle around to something we think the book did really well. One thing I will say that I think the book did really nicely was there's a whole section on, like, the life cycle of changelings and how they age. It's not poorly written. It's weird in this book. I don't know how it relates to the rest of the text at all. But there's a really interesting thing at the end on wakes and funerals. There is so much not written, but sort of crafted in white space in Changeling about the fact that the whole game is about running away from death. Like, hi, Peter Pan, I see you. And... Seeing a whole write-up on wakes and the interaction, and, and the one place where it kind of hooks into the first couple sections on the Enchanted and the Canaan is they say, when a changeling dies, and the implication is like, bodily dies, not just chimerical death, their family are enchanted and brought into the wake. And it's just this little throwaway thing. Like, everything else in this book, a thought that is not finished, but that's a thought I really want to finish. That is such a perfect setting for a political game where they're like, you do not bring your conflicts into a wake. The Seely and the Unseely swallow it and deal with each other. You come in and you celebrate and you revel. And they acknowledge not all changelings can do it. They acknowledge that like that reminder of death is very painful and some changelings refuse. And again, it's like banality trigger and everything but name. And it's a really interesting section that I think actually is a good enchanted Kinane tie-in because of what they do with it, but it's in this section of the book that's not about the enchanted and the Kinane, and then they go into funerals a little bit, and the funerals are like, yeah, changelings don't care about funerals. Like, they love the good celebration and the crying and the catharsis and the epiphany, but when it comes to the disposition of the body, as long as it's not like overtly disrespectful yeah mortal family do whatever you want we don't care they are oh, like but there was there was a great twist on that too the red caps <laughs> oh i missed that one no the she the she oh yes funerals which is timely due to you know prince philip and all that but it was i really liked the section on 
changeling seemings, oddly, in this book. And reading it this time, I realized that this is where I get a lot of my ideas about the way changeling deals with aging and death, because the framing in this book is exactly the way I think about it most of the time. Even talking about it in the you know first edition, seemings relate to biological age more than anything else mode. This is not difficult to translate into C20 because they include a lot of talk about rituals, like wakes, like funerals, like seeming transitions. It would not be difficult at all to just rip the seeming transition rituals out and be like, look, this is how you change your seeming. This can be done an infinite number of times as long as you, you know, genuinely want to do it. It was all really good stuff, and it's still pretty good. I did really love the part in the wakes and funerals section where they're talking about the difference between commoner funerals and noble funerals. Like, I read it and I stopped and I had to put my tablet down because I was like, okay, so commoners are literally everybody else on Earth and the she have white people funerals. Because that's what they wrote. It's so good. (laughs) It's like... Here are the bereaved for the she, and for everybody else, it's like, yeah, they're coming back. It's going to be great, because they won't have all that banality. It's going to be amazing. They're finally free. And I I just had to sit with that for a minute, because I missed it the first several times I read this book. I just really loved all the stuff about death. To the little tidbit about the red caps, there is this tiny little paragraph right after the whole write-up on the she funerals, where some red caps, as an act of honor, will ritually cannibalize the dead to take a bit of the essence of their lost comrades into themselves. And I want to story tell one of those funerals so badly right now, but like witnessed by non-redcaps who are not prepared for it. It just made me very happy. Yeah, reading the section on funerals and all that, I was just sitting there the whole time like, I could start a game with this scene. I could start a game with this scene. This would be great. And then you like end the game with another funeral for, you know, an NPC somebody liked or a PC. You know, not that I kill PCs all the time, but like it just has this like perfect like symmetry to it. It's really appealing. I definitely agree with that. I think, you know, a lot of the section on the life cycle of the Fae, I ended up skimming because it's very similar in tone and mode to. Stuff that gets repeated in book after book after book. But as I was skimming it, I would come across these little gems. The whole thing about death and funerals stood out to me. It's a couple pages that is just nothing like anything I've ever seen in any other Changeling books that deal with this subject matter. And there are a couple other things, like the rituals around changing seemings. I honestly think, while this chapter doesn't fit with the mission statement, at all. It's weird in that respect. It's really good stuff, and I think it's worth picking up. And that kind of hits on like the core tension in this book for me, because I like so much of the flavor and RP stuff in this book. It's just really easy to complain about the system stuff, and we've done a lot of that already. <laughs> I mean, this book has an entire chapter dedicated to character creation for Kinane. It is less of an offender than other dreaming books that have character creation chapters in it that just duplicate text. This one, at least, like, you've got 
fairy marks, you've got fairy gifts, you've got a set of explanations for which backgrounds make sense for Kinane characters and all that. Some of it's duplicated text, but not nearly as much as some of the other books. For a book, it's called The Enchanted to not include character creation rules for The Enchanted. I wonder what happened there, <laughs> you know? Like, they did the Kinane, which, good, I wanted that. But, like, they don't have You're Just Enchanted as a choice, which is strange for this book. Well, and it's especially strange because that system exists, and this was a first edition book. So when this book came out in 1997... They would have basically just have released the second edition Vampire Player's Guide that just has rules for mortals in it. It just has rules for mortals. This would have been a perfect place to say, cool, we don't need to really rewrite any of this. We just need to restructure some of it for tone, put this system in here and give it a different flavor introduction, and then layer the rules for like enchantment on top of it. And boom, you're done. It existed, and and in terms of release schedule, it existed so close to when this was released. And I don't like copy pasta within a line. I'm a changeling player. I have changeling books. I don't need core book content repeated. But I don't mind copy pasta across lines when it's appropriate, because I don't want someone who's primarily a changeling player to have to buy a vampire source book to get mortal rules. And it just seems like a place where it would have been ideal to do that. Now that you mention Across Lines, it's worth mentioning that this book includes line-specific enchantment rules, which is interesting. Like, you don't need to include it, but they did a really good job of writing these rules in a very, like, system-light way, so it's easy to use, but also interesting. I don't remember any book before this one, mentioning forced enchantment as, like, a tactic people could use. I might I might have just forgotten, but, like, just running up to somebody, slapping them upside the head and saying, you're enchanted now. I don't remember that being a thing before now, which is useful, <laughs> you know? But they also have rules specifically for, like, it's easier to enchant Garu. You don't need to enchant wraiths because, for some reason, you don't. Mages can use their willpower to resist enchantment for some reason. I guess I know why you might want that rule. I, I don't know quite what they wanted there. I've always just truncated the, like, to enchant a vampire, you give them blood thing down. And, like, in this book, they go, no, you can enchant them the normal way, too. And I don't know if I forgot that or if I just never thought of it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I really feel like this is an area where this book shines. So we've complained a lot about the systems. I will talk about one corner of the systems in this book I really liked, and that is actually the rules for enchanting. Simon mentioned unwilling enchantment. They give those rules, and they say unwilling enchantment doesn't last as long. Like a good unwilling enchantment might last, it lasts, I think, at most an hour per point of glamour you've invested. I like the fact that they make it possible, but they make it clear that developing a relationship and convincing the mortal to really accept in all the narrative ways that that implies 
accept the token is better and it invests them and it makes the agency of the mortal matter, which I like. Not that you can't, you know, brute force a situation, but their agency matters in this little way. They specifically have rules for vampires being enchanted through drinking blood, and it also doesn't last as long as the normal way, but it works. And it doesn't have to be something the changeling is doing on purpose. Like if a vampire just drinks from a changeling, this book says they're going to be enchanted and see what's going on. The mist will clean it up afterwards. That's really narratively interesting. They, unsurprisingly at this point, then give a different relationship with the Malkavians. Shocker. But I like the fact that they do more with prodigals in this, narratively and systematically, and they put more structure around enchanting than I've ever seen before. The only complaint I have about the way it's written is, it's written as though you've read all those lines. Like, especially in the mage section, they just, like, list a couple specific spheres. And I'm like, this isn't a mage changeling book, guys. This is a changeling book. Like, do a little bit of a lift here to help the people that haven't read mage. I wish there'd been a little bit more of that. But that's my only real critique of those sections. They also spend a lot of time on tokens, on examples of tokens that are meaningful, on why a human might accept it how the wrong person might accept it and what happens, and the fact that tokens are dross. Like, if you put glamour into a token to enchant someone and it doesn't end up working for one reason or another, you haven't blown that glamour. You can rip it open and take the glamour back, which I suppose has always made sense, and maybe that's in other books, but this is the first time I've just seen it acknowledged. I think this is an area that this book really does excel. It's when it gets into some of the more fringe character stuff that I wish they'd done a little bit more refinement. And even though I have issues with the way they deal with the core group for this book, The Enchanted, and how how they've dealt with what happens when enchanted become unenchanted and what happens when they become too enchanted and go into we're not calling it bedlam. A lot of the flavor they put up around that is really good. It's just, again, the system there is a little much. It's not calculus, but there's a lot of math. It doesn't need to be there. It gets in the way. But on the flip side, I think it's really interesting that they jump out there and they're like, so one way to cure people of not bedlam is to ravage them. That's interesting. I'm not in love with the direction they went with it, but like the core idea there has merit because you're just ripping glamour out of somebody and enchantment is just glamour, just like how an enchantment token is just dross. Logically, that makes sense. It's just the cultural connotations they built around it and like the RP value of it that they assigned is a little mm, not perfectly thought through in my opinion. I like the idea that ravaging a dreamstruck canane or enchanted to draw them out of being dreamstruck is possible. I think some of the cultural stuff they built around it is wrapped up in first edition Seely Unseely. Like they very much say, oh, the Seely are willing to do this, you know, because they don't care, but then they're also helping. Like it's weird. My broader issue is from a system standpoint, they write up a whole system for it. And then the very next paragraph, they just write up the system for ravaging Canaan slash the Enchanted, and it directly conflicts with what they just wrote when someone's dreamstruck. 
Like, they don't put any work into being, like, being dreamstruck substantially changes their interaction with this epiphany. It's just like, you can use ravaging to cure the dreamstruck, and here's a system. You can ravage and enchant it, and here's the system. And they look like they were written by completely different people. Like, consistency in these books is complaint enough, but it, like, one system ends and the next one begins on the same page. So it's a bit of an extreme case. Yeah, and they go into a bit there where, when they're dealing with the dreamstruck specifically, they talk about how having a high banality makes you less likely to become dreamstruck. And I, I get the thought. I just, I don't know if I agree with it. Instinctually, it makes sense. The more grounded in the real world you are, the less likely you are to go wandering off into fairy, even if it's only in your own mind. But on the other hand, banality is about being inflexible, about being rigid, and a kind of resilience is being able to roll with things you don't expect. Banality kind of precludes that. So it's a little close to morality system territory, and I don't, I don't like it. I don't know how to fix it, but I don't like it. And one thing this book really does that I think would be useful to both storytellers and players is it spends quite a while with the idea of why would you enchant someone? At least at my table, the reason people enchant is usually, oh, I need somebody to be my bitch for 30 seconds. (laughs) Like, that is a reason. But the topic comes up, I think, three separate times, although I find it not super helpful because... I've thought about this before. For people who are having trouble incorporating mortals into a dreaming game, this might be gold. So it's worth mentioning that it's there. I don't remember a lot of the reasons sticking with me. And by that, I mean both that none of them seemed revelatory, but none of them seemed wrong either. Like, they're good examples. They work. And I think it's one of those things where I've seen why my players enchant. I know why I have my NPCs enchant. So it didn't stand out to me too much. But if you're just trying to learn Changeling and you don't totally get like where the enchanted fit based on the core book, because the core book doesn't spend a lot of time on it, C20 more, but still that section on enchanted and Kinane at the end had to be almost all crunch because while the book is huge, it's covering the whole line. And I do feel like that content in here isn't sparkling, but is definitely useful. That really covers most of the content in this relatively small book. So then we get to the exciting period where the points are made up and the scoring matters about as much as any two guys' opinions on the internet. So what period would you say this text falls into if it applies to our changeling periods at all? This is one that doesn't work great for this i like give it a tentative like one or zero era because uh it's just very unconcerned with any of the things that like differentiate these books in the meta plot like it doesn't care about the fomorians it barely mentions autumn people it barely mentions dontaine the only thing that really puts it anywhere is that the seely an unseelie divide is very, like, good versus bad, and the bad side of this has something to do with banality, but we're not really talking about that. So, eh, like, system's breaking down, but kind of there, I think? Yeah, I would agree with that. I would say it's solidly a period one. 
And that's partially, you know, the publication date. It has an ad for Changeling 2nd Edition in the back of the book. So this is really the tail end of 1st Edition. They've already kind of decided on some of the things they hadn't figured out. And especially the courts are very period one, sealier good, unsealier bad. I mean, it's unambiguous. So that's pretty much where I'd put that. For the next one, what would you say about the system? Would you say the systems in this book are functional? They're about as functional as anything in first edition dreaming, but I don't like a lot of the design choices it makes. Like, fairy blood is a useless point sink a la generation, and I hate those. And, like, it nominally makes kin playable characters, but, like, the system is punishing if you're not using them as DNPCs and rather using them as player characters. The rules don't not work. They just... They don't seem fun or playable. I think I would kind of be on the fence about this. I would interpret it as two different books. So as an NPC book, I'd say, yes, the systems work. Especially the systems around enchantment, if you're just using those for incidentally enchanted characters at your table, and, you know, using them to kind of reflect certain resistance to enchantment and what that might mean, or have unwilling enchantment work a little differently. I think all of that stuff works, and it works really well. So if you're just pulling this in as a storyteller to add some dynamism, to build more interesting NPCs, I think it's a good book. I don't think it succeeds as a PC book. Even the stuff in here that is purchasable by PCs, it just doesn't finish coming together into something. I can't imagine running an entire game with this book of like all canane the way I could with like the Spectre's book or the Freak Legion's book or the Ghoul's book or Thin Blood book. Like I can see how that would work. The picture doesn't finish coming together for me with this one. Depends on what you want the book for. Do you think it's cohesive with other Changeling the Dreaming products, both in the original line and then the does it work in C20? I think this is one of those weird books where, like, it interfaces with the plot so little, sort of like the Inanime book does, that it's not hurt by having few, like, hardpoint connections into the line, but unless you're motivated to have humans matter in your game, you're going to struggle getting this book to do anything for you. Honestly, like, as a first edition book, I think it'd be pretty easy to port a lot of this into C20, like I was talking about with the the seeming rituals, like next time I run a dreaming game, I'm totally going to use that if I remember it, because it's good. Like, it creates narrative, organic opportunities for people to, like, do things with their characters. I guess my answer is, like, all of the flavor stuff in this game fits Changeling great. Again, the system stuff is a little bit of a sticky wicket. What do you think? I would agree with that. I think the whole chapter on the life cycle of Changelings, much as it doesn't match the mission statement, is very easily ported into C20. I think the enchantment rules are worth pulling directly into C20. I don't think they really need to be changed at all. And I think some of the tonal stuff about the Enchanted, and especially about the Kinane, 
if you don't want your canane to be weird walking freeholds, which just puts them in a really strange place in fairy society. I think it needs some rebuilding, but it's worth doing a little bit of architecture work on this book and using that to replace what's in C20 on the canane. Yeah, I agree. I think the sweet spot nobody's hit yet is you take a lot of this book and some of C20 and you slam them together to make useful canane. <laughs> useful, but not godlike. Yeah. yeah. So then, would you say this was enjoyable reading? I don't know if I'm going to be able to give a good opinion here, because, like, this book is, like, just pure nostalgia for me, but it is very strangely constructed. And, like I said, it makes a lot of system choices that I find really obnoxious. So, reading it for the flavor, this is like a five. Reading it for the system, this is like a one. I guess it's a three on average? I don't know. Yeah, I think I'm, I think I come to three as well. Maybe not in quite as intense and extreme. I would put the systems at more like a two because there are a couple places like the actual enchantment rules where I like them, but there are a lot of places I don't. In terms of the writing itself, there were just some really inconsistent changes in tone around like the role of banality and bedlam and can the canane get bedlam no and then later they can and just like clean up stuff that even in the flavor it keeps it from being a five for me i'd say it's more like a four i mean it's definitely a four 4.5 i would still say on average i end up around three or a little bit higher aesthetic value art and layout and i know we have opinions about this so my opinions on this are wildly varied, and I will start with the stuff I loved. This had some really fantastic art in it. I love the chapter header art. And the thing I realized, and I don't know why this has never dawned on me before, there are all of these really brilliant, I want to say they're gouache, they look like gouache watercolor, chapter headers, like the full page pieces, and I realized they were done by the same person that did all of the really loose, sketchy pencil chapter headers in the later books. And it had never clicked in my head. I don't know why, but I suddenly looked at it and recognized her style. And I looked that artist up. Her name is Rebecca Gay. And she did the original Sarah Angel magic card along with a lot of other magic cards. She's a pretty big name, although not for her changeling work. And, like, that stuff is amazing. I love the cover art. I think the cover art is brilliant. But then there's some other art that's real weird. Like, once you get out of that stuff, some of the proportions are bizarre. There are a bunch of sepia tone pieces that are just awkwardly constructed. So, on the art, this is kind of very high highs. Like, it ranges between five and, like, two for me. The layout is a one. Someone needs to teach whoever did this layout what margins are. Like, it was painful. There were places where the header literally, like the header of a paragraph would touch the text of the paragraph above it. And just from the regular font they were choosing to use. And it's just like, my bachelor's is an art, and I can't look at that and not get angry. Like, on the whole, despite this having 
Like it's not quite Slua and a tire swing or 20s swinger knocker, but like the art is close to that. Some of the art in here is close to that for me. I still end up giving this like a low three, which feels very strange. Yeah, this is a weird one for me because like, like Victor said, there's some really good stuff. Like the chapter headers are all really good and some of the other stuff is really good too. But the sepia pieces are just washed out and kind of indistinct and not great <laughs> for a lot of different reasons. But the layout stuff is pretty weird sometimes. Like, there's a section in the middle of the book where there's another fiction piece, and I didn't recognize it because I was skimming, and, like, it's just in the normal two-column block with no font change under a normal, like, chapter opener header, and, like, I went back and I was like, wait, wait, this is fiction. Like, this is not, this is not anything to do with what? <laughs> like, you did not telegraph this in any way, and like, as much as I like the opening fiction in this book, the font they picked kind of hurts. It's really good when it's good, and it's kind of bad when it's bad, so I don't know, like, it's a two, maybe a two and a half? What is your one-sentence review of this book? You should buy this book if you think humans are the main antagonists in Dreaming, because this book gives the storyteller a lot of really good options for making interesting humans who have the capacity to stand up to changelings. You should buy this book if you want a complete changeling experience. Simon's review is much more specific, but I feel like as much as most of the new thoughts that are introduced in this book aren't finished, it does kind of finish at least the base thought of like, what are the enchanted? What do they do? How do they behave? Yeah, I didn't even realize how missing that was from the core book until I read this. Well, those are our thoughts on the enchanted, Dreaming's Year of the Ally book, which we read sort of as part of the Metaplot series, but sort of not because it doesn't really fit in the Metaplot. Like it's kind of a background to everything if you choose to use it. Hopefully some of you found this useful and now know whether or not you'd like to go look for this book. And we will talk at you next time you download us.